Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Sarah Kinclay from the Max Planck Institute of Molecular Genetics on this show. Sarah, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD from the University of Hamburg in 2007. After that, you stayed in Hamburg to do a postdoc until 2012. You then joined the Max Planck Institute for Molecular Genetics in Berlin for a second postdoc and since 2020, you are independent group leader of the Chromatin Structure and Function Group in the Department of Computational Molecular Biology at the MPI for Molecular Genetics. How did your passion for biology and especially molecular biology start in the beginning? Um, so thank you very much for having me on the show, Stefan. Um, yeah, I became interested in science pretty young, uh, so I liked it very much in my high school. Um, and uh, I enjoyed physics, chemistry, and biology. Um, but I also found somehow in high school that um, with physics and chemistry, there seemed to kind of be always an equation or an answer to the equation, whereas biology was a little bit more mysterious. And so this drew me um, for some reason in the direction of biology. And just over the course of studies, um, my work became more directed um, towards epigenetics research and molecular biology out of interest. So you're Canadian. I think I picked that up along the research. Uh, how did you find your way into Germany? Uh, because you started your PhD in, in Germany. And uh, do you want to go back to Canada at one point? Yeah, so I am Canadian. Um, and I did my undergraduate degrees at the University of Western Ontario uh, in London, Ontario, Canada, and my uh, Master's of Science um, at Queen's University. Um, and how I came to Germany is um, through love. <laughs> I met somebody um, and I was actually at the crossroads of either going into medicine or doing a PhD. Um, and I met my husband at the time, uh, or now, um, um, then. And yeah, this brought me to Germany. And this actually guided me into the direction of science rather than medicine. So coming to your science, that centers around the chromatin-associated protein PHF13 and its functions. Um, I want to start with a publication that was published in 2009. Um, there you characterized the molecular and functional features of a novel protein called SPOC1. Um, could you talk about this protein and what you found out about this Sure. So Spock 1 was actually first um, identified by the group of Andreas Winterpacht um, and his PhD student at the time, um, Garrett Moorman, um, spearheaded the first study on it where they looked at the RNA of Spock 1 and they found that it was correlated um, with a poor prognosis in ovarian cancer. And they also found that um, it was uh, higher expressed in non-resectable ovarian cancers, which they um, postulated at the time um, could indicate that it's involved in more aggressive oncogenic phenotypes. Um, and that's actually how the name SPOC1 came around. So survival time associated PhD finger protein in ovarian cancer one. Um, and following this work, um, I started my PhD and my supervisor at the time, who was Professor Hans Will, um, was interested in characterizing it at the protein level because there was only information about it at the RNA level at the time. 
So in my PhD, we generated all the tools, the antibodies, the constructs, um, cell lines. We tested siRNAs for depletion, um, and we really um, addressed the um, yeah characterizing this protein and. The publication in 2009 was the first publication on the protein itself, and we were able to show that um, SPOC1 is a tightly chromatin-bound protein, and that when it's um, uh, released from chromatin, that it has an extremely short half-life of 10 to 15 minutes, um, which indicates that the protein probably has an important cellular function, otherwise the cell itself wouldn't uh, find it necessary to degrade it so quickly. And um, we also found. So, so, sorry, sorry to interrupt you here. Um, how did you measure that? How did we measure the half life? Yeah, I mean, uh, the difference in half life between chromatin bound and not chromatin bound. So there's different um, um, protein biochemistry techniques that you can do, such as fractionation, where you can actually isolate um, soluble proteins, whether it's in the cytoplasm or the nucleoplasm, um, and you can isolate the chromatin fraction. And by doing experiments um, where you treat cells with a drug called cyclohexamide, which blocks uh, translation, you're actually able to measure the half-life of the protein. And in addition, we have uh, we had basically mapped out the different domains in the protein, and we knew which domains were responsible for its chromatin association, and which uh, and how we could basically release it. So it has in the C terminus a PhD domain, um, which we, was predicted to bind to chromatin. Um, and when we deleted this domain, we could make the protein soluble, basically, and then you could measure the half life of the protein. Um, yeah, so a little bit of protein biochemistry and some some drugs that uh, modulate transcription you can address these questions okay yeah <laughs> i interrupted you do you know where where we just stopped <laughs> sure and so i mean in we we addressed also um the uh, relationship of phf13 throughout the cell cycle so we found that P, uh, spock one was basically increased um uh its chromatin association from um, S phase to G2. Um, and that very early on in mitosis, it appeared to be released from chromatin and it was found in the soluble nucleoplasm. Um, and later on in mitosis, so around uh, late anaphase, telophase, it then reassociates with chromatin. So it has a biphasic chromatin localization. Um, and by doing different experiments where we, um, for example, treated with a drug called nocodazole, which is a spindle inhibitor, which blocks the cells in, in metaphase of mitosis, we could see that if we deplete PHF13 or SPOC1, um, that uh, the protein, um, that the chromatin itself didn't compact um, as tightly. And so we uh, assumed at the time that the protein had an important chromatin role in regulating chromatin structure throughout the cell cycle. So you now used Spock one and PHF thirteen like synonymously. Um, so when did is it the same protein? I guess so. But uh, <laughs> when did the name change, or yeah. why? So very good question. Yes, it is. Um, Spock one and PHF thirteen are the same protein. As I mentioned previously, it was originally coined Spock one survival time associated PhD uh, PhD finger protein in ovarian cancer one based on the first study of the of the um, RNA of the protein um, but PHF 13 belongs to a family of proteins the PHF family and so there was a little bit of confusion with the nomenclature and since the first publication there was no description of the protein they could call it um, as they wished but as um, further studies came out in this PHF family so this is a family of 23 chromatin uh, proteins that all contain PhD domains, um, it became 
I just it made more sense to to um, call it. It's it's not, uh, by the nomenclature of PHF thirteen because it belongs to the family of PHF proteins, um, and they're all related somewhat um, in function. At least they're all involved in epigenetic regulation. And um, yeah, for this purpose, we switched uh, to calling it to PHF thirteen. So you follow up, followed up then um, with by some studies you were involved uh, in looking at the function of PHF13 in spermatogenesis, DNA repair, and also antiviral response. So PHF13 seems to have uh, functions in many different ways. Um, could you maybe summarize these findings? Sure. Yeah, so um, following the, the first paper on PHF13, there were different studies that went on to kind of evaluate its chromatin functions. Um, And uh, the group that actually identified uh, SPOC1 or PHF13 made a gene trap mouse where they did a knockout of, of uh, SPOC1 or PHF13. Um, and this mouse had some very interesting phenotypes. So the first one was that it was um, basically born with non-Mendelian genetics, the, the homozygous knockout, which indicates that at least under certain conditions um, in the, um, that in certain conditions that it could be embryonic lethal. Um, and this was done in a mixed genetic background, which means that it wasn't uh, very clean, um, the genetic background. And as they um, crossed these mice into an isogenic background, they actually um, got fewer and fewer homozygous mice. So this really pointed to the point, uh, to the direction that PHF13 um, could be embryonic lethal. And in the mixed genetic background, where they did manage to get a few homozygous knockout mice that had um, one, the strongest phenotype that they observed was that in the male mice that they had um, testes atrophy. So um, PHF13 itself is highest expressed in the stem cells of the, uh, of the testes, they're called spermatogonia. Um, and in the knockout mouse, by 20 weeks, there was a um, basically a a Sertoli-only cell phenotype, so there was no um, cells left in the testes. Um, and if you looked a little bit earlier, um, around 10 weeks, they could see that there was stem cells, but none of the other differentiated cell types. So the conclusions of this um, study were basically that PHF13 um, is important, so it's a stem cell factor, at least in the testes, and that it's important for differentiation. Um, And another study that came out around the same time, um, we looked at the role of, of SPOC1 or PHF13 in um, DNA damage response. So this was spearheaded um, by Andreas Mund. And um, we were interested in uh, the potential role in DNA damage response because we had observed that when we treated cells with um, DNA damage, so such as gamma radiation or certain drugs that induce um, double-stranded DNA damage, that um, SPOC1 or PHF13 formed foci, um, and these foci overlapped with DNA repair foci. So this gave us the uh, hint that it's potentially playing a role in DNA damage response. Um, and using really cool reporter tools, um, Andreas was able to show that actually the levels of PHF13 are regulating um, non-homologous end joining as well as Uh, homologous recombination, but in an inverse manner. So higher levels um, of PHF13 reduced non-homologous end joining and promoted homologous recombination and, um, and vice versa, lower levels did the opposite. So um, yeah, they found, we found this. And another really important fi finding of this paper was, um, was also done in collaboration um, with Slimane uh, Ali C. Ali. Um, from CNRS in Paris, and we found that PHF13 um, is interacting with many canine methyltransferase proteins, 
um, and that it actually um, influenced the um, epigenetic landscape. So it appeared to, um, if you adjusted the levels of PHF-13, it appeared to recruit these complexes, um, as well as you could see a recruitment of the canine binding proteins, such as HP1 and CAP1, um, following adjustment of uh, PHF-13 levels. So the overall um, uh, understanding from this paper was that PHF-13 does play a role in DNA damage response, and that it does so by modulating chromatin structure and epigenetics around the DNA damage break. You also asked about um, uh, its role in, in virus. Um, so there was, there has actually been several publications now saying that PHF-13 is involved um, as, a, as a host restriction factor um, to different viruses. The first publication um, was published um, by the group of Thomas Dopner for the adenovirus protein. Um, and there, um, this was also spearheaded by his excellent P, uh, postdoc at the time, um, Sabrina Schreiner, um, and she looked at um, adenovirus infection, and she found that around 48 hours post-adenoviral infection, that the levels of PHF-13 or Spock one were completely gone, so it was degraded. Um, and many uh, viral protein or, or viruses bring along their own kind of proteases and proteasome-like um, uh, proteins. And in the case of adenovirus, this is the E1B55K and E4ORF6 protein complex. And she found that this, this complex is binding to PHF13 and targeting it for its degradation. Um, and this turned out to be relevant because if um, she stabilized the levels of PHF13 in the cell, so um, by competing with basically the, um, the, the, the virus's ability to degrade the protein, um, PHF13 bound to the viral genomes and repressed its tra uh, um, transcription and also repressed its replication. So, um, and since then, there's been different studies also in HIV. Um, by the group of Michael Schindler and also in cytomegliovirus um, by the group of Thomas Stamminger, where um, they showed similar effects that PHF-13 has the ability to bind the viral genome to cause repression um, and uh, that basically the viruses use their own, their own tools to get rid of the protein so that they can replicate properly. So um, this sets the stage because you then, at least in the timeline of the publications, uh, you started your own lab and continued, obviously, to work on PHF-13 and characterized it further. Uh, one tool to characterize proteins is obviously antibodies, and you just uh, hinted to this a little bit. So you made your own antibody, and is this a good one? For PHF-13? Yes, Yeah, so we made um, rabbit polyclonal peptide antibodies um, for PHF-13, and we also, um, in collaboration with the group uh, from Munich, um, Elizabeth Kramer's group, we made rat monoclonal antibodies. Um, and the antibodies that we have towards PHF-13 are excellent. Unfortunately, not all of the antibodies that are available for PHF-13 are excellent. We've tested many of them, not all, um, but I think this is yeah, the way it goes with certain antibodies. So, yeah. so your your first paper from your own lab was published in an eLife, um, and yeah, you tried to study uh, the mechanism of action of PHF13. Um, what did you find out there? 
Yeah, so we had previously seen that um, or, or it had been expected that PHF-13 is a K4-methyl binding protein due to the fact that it has a PhD domain. Um, and so we basically proved this by crystallizing the PhD domain in complex with the K4-methyl peptide. Um, this was done in collaboration with Jim Runming uh, from the University of Toronto. Um, and we were able to show that it is a bona fide K4-methyl reader. Both our group and Jim Run Ming's group did a lot of uh, protein biochemistry um, uh, type experiments thereafter to really show that it's not only the PhD domain, but the protein itself um, can bind specifically to K4-methylated histones. So these are um, K4-trimethylation, H3K4-trimethylation is um, an active mark that is found um, as uh, the promoters of active genes. Um, and... In this study, we also did um, chip sequencing in collaboration with Luciano de Croce um, from the CRG in Barcelona, and um, we were able to show, at least in embryonic mouse embryonic stem cells, um, that PHF13 um, is localizing at active promoters um, as well as um, at bivalent promoters. And so bivalent promoters are these um, promoters that were are believed to have basically an active and a repressive mark um, at the same nucleosome. Um, and these are uh, formed by a complex called PRC2. So we also showed in this paper that PHF13 can interact with PRC2. Um, in addition, we also found that it interacted with RNA polymerase um, when it's phosphorylated at um, serine 5, um, which is a complex that forms with PRC2 um, to cause polymerase pausing um, at bivalent promoters. So overall, um, this study showed that PHF13 is a K4-methyl reader um, and that um, it can also act as an effector at both active um, and bivalent chromatin landscapes. Yeah, you not only did chip, but you also did rechip uh, with H3K4 trimethylation, H3K27 trimethylation in CD4 positive memory T cells. So, I mean, rechip is kind of <laughs> pushing chip really to the edges. Uh, so, did this work? Uh, I mean, since it published, it, it worked well. Uh, but um, yeah, um, what was the advantage of this uh, rechip method, and what did you find then? Actually, it turned out to be very straightforward. So we the, the purpose of the um, rechip experiments that we did was that it was still at the time um, open for discussion whether or not bivalent chromatin regions, since it was typically done from bulk chromatin um, chip sequencing, it was still open to the question of whether this is actually representing two types of chromatin, active and repressed chromatin, or whether active and repressive chromatin marks can exist on the same nucleosome. So it was, it was still open for discussion. And we decided to simply address this question. Um, and the protocol itself was quite straightforward. It had three little tricks um, to it that were important. The first one is that you had to really shear your chromatin down to mono or um, dinucleosome levels. And this was e essential because um, the second point was that to do this uh, approach, you need to use a peptide polyclonal antibody that um, specifically recognizes your epitope and that there's a known peptide that can elute the antibody. Um, and for the elution to function, you need small templates. You need mono or dinucleosome. So larger than that, it didn't work. Um, and the third trick to the whole protocol was, um, yeah, at the end to make sure that you size select so that you have um, DNA fragment lengths that are only mono dinucleosome lengths. And this was done both technically as well as informatically. Um, and in the end, we could very nicely see that um, bivalent chromosomes do exist uh, or bivalent nucleosomes do exist with the active and repressive marks. Um, and this was well known 
to be, or this was believed to be the case for sure, in uh, mouse embryonic stem cells. But um, through, we were at the time working in the German Epigenome uh, Project and the International Human Epigenome Consortium. And we had seen in, in a lot of our work that actually bivalency was a common phenomenon across cell types. And that's why we applied it then as well in this paper to um, CD4 memory T cells, just to say it's not just stem cells that, are, that have these landscapes, but also other cell types too. So this means that nucleosomes can have active and uh, repressive marks on the same nucleosome. And then what do they do with it? Um, decide either way? Yeah, so these are, at least in the case of K4 trimethylation, H3K4 trimethylation and H3K27, these are so-called poised chromosomes uh, or, or nucleosomes. Um, and they can either become active or they can become silenced depending on, on the, um, the external cues. And so they, it's, it's kind of a plasticity to the epigenetics that allows it to adjust to its environment. You then went back to PHF13 and characterized obviously the function further. Um, in this case, you looked at uh, RNA-Pol2 regulation. Um, so what did you find there? Yeah, so we're still kind of in the dark ages with the regulation of RNA-Pol2, I have to admit. So we have a lot of convincing data that suggests that it's interacting and um, involved in RNA-Pol2, um, at least recruitment, but we don't know um, exactly how uh, or why. Um, so what I can say is that we've done some experiments such as column chromatography, um, where you run proteins over a column and then you sort fractions based on size. Um, and then we've co uh, reciprocally co-immunoprecipitated um, PHF13 and RNA polymerase from the same fractions, which strongly points to the fact that they um, are in a similar complex. Um, and as I briefly alluded to before, um, while we do co-precipitate all forms of RNA polymerase, the strongest interaction seems to be with the um, serine 5-phosphorylated form of RNA polymerase which is associated with paused polymerases. So either paused at bivalent promoters, um, it can be paused um, at, um, at active promoters while it's doing five prime capping of the nascent RNA, um, or it can be paused at splice site junctions. And the interesting thing is we have basically a lot of data to say that PHF13 is interacting with polycomb. So what you would expect at, at bivalent promoters, um, it's, um, also interacting with splicing proteins, so it fits with an interaction of RNA pull and in, 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 in splicing pause. And also, um, we know that it's at the active promoters from from the fact that it binds to K4 trimethylation, and we see it there at the, at the um, from chip sequencing data. So. Um, yeah, we know that there's a relationship, and we also know that if we deplete PHF13, that we can see reduced levels, uh, in particular, of the serine 5-phosphorylated RNA polymerase um, at bivalent promoters, for example. Um, so there is a relationship, um, but um, beyond that, it's still we're still exploring, actually, its relationship in splicing and its relationship in transcription. We know that adjusting the levels of PHF13 can... Um, impact both transcriptional repression and transcriptional activation. Um, and I would say that our current understanding is that actually SPOC1 or PHF13 is acting more like a scaffold and that it's able to recruit effectors to chromatin to modulate these processes. And just recently, in March 2022, you posted a paper on BioArchive linking uh, PHF13 function to coesine and also to phase separation. So the 
sexy topic of the time. <laughs> so can you talk about, uh, I mean, and when this is published, the, the interview is published, maybe the paper is also published in a print journal. I don't know where you are standing right now with this uh, paper. Uh, but can you maybe talk about the interplay of PHF13, uh, coesine and phase separation? Sure. So yes, um, that's what we're working on. Uh, we're one of the active projects that we have going on right now. And when we have a really, really cool phenotype. So when we overexpress PHF13 in cells, it is capable of converting chromatin into chromosomes. And this is a phenomenon that has only been shown before for cohesion and the condensing complexes. Um, and it was shown first um, by the group of uh, um, Jan Peter Michaels that if you um, delete VAPL, um, that cohesion becomes uh, increased or loaded onto chromatin and that this can drive chromatin to chromosome condensation. Similarly, um, very recently, in, at the end of 2021, um, the group of Kim Nasmuth showed that if you um, deplete a protein called MCPH1, that the same thing happens to, to, to the condensing complexes, that they load onto interface chromatin and drive um, a kind of condensation phenomenon of the chromatin into chromosome-like structures. So well. It's well described that the, that the condensing complexes are involved in mitotic chromosome condensation. It's not really so frequently discussed about a role for cohesion. Um, cohesion is more known for its role in transcription um, and loop extrusion and also for cohesion of chromosomes. Um, and PHF13 is a new player that seems to be able to do something similar um, to both of these complexes. And of course, since PHF13, it's a very small protein, And it itself doesn't have an ATPase domain. It was clear to us that it cannot be the only factor doing this. Um, so we tried in this paper to elucidate how actually PHF13 can manage the conversion of chromatin into a chromosome. And it turns out um, that the protein interacts with cohesion. So cohesion is part of the story. Um, and that it itself is able to oligomerize through a direct dimerization and its N-terminus and an indirect dimerization in its C-terminus. And this oligomerization allows PHF13 the ability to span across um, chromatin in a linear fashion, bridging neighboring nucleosomes to cause a compaction, a linear compaction. But this in itself isn't sufficient. It requires the cohesion, which has been reported by groups such as C. Stecker um, and others, to induce a kind of bridging-induced phase separation, um, which um, gives the two acting forces on the chromatin are able to convert uh, basically a, 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 um, the chromatin into a, a rod-like structure. And we could nicely show actually um, in collaboration with Andrea Chirello, um, who is a physicist in Naples, Italy, he could show using molecular dynamic simulations that um, in fact, both factors are required because if you just have PHF13, you end up in a collapsed globule, um, which is, uh, has been shown by others that if you just have a linear compacting force on chromatin, the end state will be basically a ball and not a, not a rod-like structure. But in the models, if he added PHF13 and cohesion, we were able to get end up with like rod-like chromosome structures. And we could nicely recapitulate this in vivo because based on his findings, we went back and we depleted um, cohesion from uh, PHF13 overexpressing cells. And we found that they turned into collapsed globules and not chromosome-like structures. Um, so the, the overall finding, I think, of this paper is that um, 
that PHF-13 is definitely important for modulating higher chromatin order, that it is capable of it. Um, and at least it proposes the idea that um, the ability to oligomerize into a polymer and bind a, a polymer binding a polymer um, is sufficient to compact the chromatin and kind of exclude it from the um, from the nucleoplasm. We've actually in our in our review process have dropped the point on phase separation because it's quite controversial, um, and we plan on focusing on this a little bit later. Um, just because it's not the main point of the paper um, and we don't want to fight an uphill challenge um, about something that's not the main point of the paper. But I have to say, I think that chromatin probably can phase separate. I don't believe it's through liquid-liquid-like phase separation, um, which many processes are described. And I think that other types of phase separation, um, such as either a gel-like or a polymer-induced phase separation could actually um, support the rigid structure that is necessary for a chromatin compaction, at least in the case of mitotic chromosome. But is time this then, sorry? Time will tell though. <laughs> yeah. Is this then what you're working on right now and what you're focusing on, let's say in the next five years? We're working on different things. So the phase separation aspect, I would say, is a minor um, part of the story. Um, we're really interested in actually the role of PHF-13 in oncogenesis. Um, so there was actually recently a paper published um, by a Chinese group um, head by Wan Haozi, um, where they showed that PHF-13 um, uh, is playing a role in epithelial to mesenchymal transition in pancreatic cancer. And we have a lot of data saying that very, very low regu uh, misregulation, so modest um, changes in PHF-13 expression level is sufficient to cause a lot of genome instability. Um, and so we are um, pursuing this quite actively to understand um, how it's actually creating so much genome instability um, and to actually demonstrate that it's an oncoprotein. Um, we're also interested, really interested in revisiting this question about whether or not it is embryonic lethal. And so we're working on this. And the other thing that we're um, pursuing, at least with regards to PHF-13, is we want to um, try and figure out at the atomic level the interaction with cohesion. Because we know from the uh, PHF-13 side that the binding of cohesion is to the PhD domain, but we don't know which member of cohesion PHF-13 is interacting with. Uh, sorry, what, yeah, which member of cohesion that PHF-13 is interacting with. So we're um, developing a lot of tools right now, and we have a lot of different ideas about how we can um, tease this out and find out which where the direct interaction is with the from the cohesion side. Um, and another project that we have going on that we're very, very active with is also related to a cancer aspect, and that is that we are um, working on trying to create tools to detect R-loops. And um, R-loops are uh, a three-stranded nucleic acid structure that are found in cells that are composed of an RNA-DNA hybrid and a displaced single-stranded um, DNA loop. These structures form um, endogenously and they happen for both physiological reasons, um, so they're known to play a role in transcriptional regulation um, and also DNA damage response um, and immunoglobulin class switching, so they have some biological purposes. But when they form aberrantly, they're extremely genotoxic, um, and that's due to the fact that the RNA-DNA hybrid has a much stronger affinity for itself than the DNA-DNA hybrid does. So. Um, This is a pretty interesting um, field to, right now, but the one kind of limitation in the field is that there are no tools to visualize these structures in vivo. 
Um, and that's what we're working on. We've been working on for a couple of years to try and find, to create endogenous uh, reporters for our loops because we have a lot of questions regarding this. Um, and yeah, so these are kind of the directions, the future directions of the group. So the, the work you shared with us uh, in this interview was all very successful and uh, seems straightforward. <laughs> However, uh, my question would be, uh, was there at one point of your career like not so successful area or time stretches and how did you overcome those so i think science at least my science has always been ups and downs and hills and valleys and um yeah there have been many times when we've been trying to do something that simply was either the wrong question the wrong hypothesis or the technology wasn't so far to address it and um, this is always disappointing, but it's a part of science. And I think, um, at least from my side, whenever I uh, hit these phases, I just have to readdress the question from a different way. And so I think it's very normal um, to have challenges. And at least in these the projects with PHF 13, they were not straightforward. They're very long projects um, because they're we had to make all of the tools and we had to ask the questions and we asked multiple questions that were wrong before we got to the right questions. But it's by learning from the wrong answers that you've kind of direct yourself in the right direction at some point. And so, yes, for me, this is, I think, a part of science is, is the downs as well. So in the last 33 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your maybe most important finding or something that we might have missed in this interview? So I think in general, we've been really interested in chromatin structure and epigenetics, and we continue to be interested in this field. Um, I, to quote somebody um, that I, I admire as a scientist, um, he once said that good science opens more questions than it does answers. And so I always feel like I'm at the very beginning of my science. I have never reached a point where I feel like I have solved everything or I'm even close to being uh, to solving to solving my questions. So I would have to say an answer to that that I, I'm I'm hopeful that the the most uh, profound findings that we have to contribute to science are those to come. And um, yeah, until now we've made our minor contributions in epigenetics um, and regulators of epigenetics and yeah some technologies to address epigenetics. So thank you, Sarah, for your time and for being on the show. Thank you very much for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com and we'll give you a shout out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.